You are about to hear about success and who killed JFK from none other than the son of Albert Anastasia, the notorious crime boss who was gunned down in a barber shop in 1957 in New York City. Buckle on up for this exclusive one-of-a-kind interview. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on the Motivation Show was featured as the villain Nan in the two Superman movies which starred Christopher Reeve. He was also a professional boxer who won his first 16 fights. Now that's not too shabby. He also is infamously known as the son of Albert Anastasia, who was a crime boss who was labeled as the Lord High Executioner. He also played football, and he also has a lot of other incredible projects, which he's gonna talk about now. And I have to tell you, most people that I introduce have one or two things that they've done significant. This man has done an awful lot of significant stuff. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Jack O'Halloran. Hey, how are you? I couldn't be any better, Jack. And I wanted to start by going back into the past, if we may. Sure. Go back into the 1950s when okay. Jack O'Halloran grew up. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how life was growing up as a teenager and where you grew up. Well, I was raised, I was born and raised in Philadelphia and uh, I lived there till 1958. They built the Walt Whitman Bridge and everybody scurried over to South Jersey. Uh, because it was all open land, uh, farmland. And, you know, we went over there in Belmar, New Jersey and, and built a house. And, and I finished my high school years at Triton Regional High School in Runnymede, New Jersey. Uh, but I always drifted back across the bridge to, uh, to Philly. And, 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 and as, I, as I got older, you know, I was incorporated to meet a lot of people involved in my father's world from New York and, uh, and up and down the East Coast. So, you know, uh, home was like, I, I really liked the city of Boston. I spent a lot of time in Boston and Boston became like home. New York, I was there for a while, but uh, I didn't, there were so many changes going on in New York and things and it was a, a pandemonium city and stuff. And, and uh, if I stayed in New York, I probably would have wound up behind bars like a lot of people for long periods of time. And uh, so I moved around a lot, you know, and, and, and I was tutored to do that by Meyer Lansky and a few other people. I never, I didn't hang out on a corner so that I could be involved in a conspiracy, you know, especially when they come out with the RICO deal where they attached everybody. If you just hung around with people, they could invent reasons for putting you in jail just to get off the street. So is learning lessons that you go through and, and sports gave me a reason to move around, you know, boxing gave me a reason to go worldwide and, 
and moved from state to I could you know to be in New Jersey for a while, Boston for a while, and fighting in different cities. So I, and I had a lot of fights in a short period of time. So I fought in Europe, and you know, and California became a home. I lived in California for a while and became California heavyweight champion. And you know, I did what I needed to do. Boxing was a day job, you know. Then if you were involved in if you were involved in any kind of organized crime situation, you had to have a day job or to show revenue stream where they, they, they could find a way to put you in jail for where, where are you getting your money at? You know what I mean? So it was all about the way you were educated. And I was educated by some pretty smart people. Meyer Lansky was a smart guy and Charlie Luciano was a smart guy and Frank Costello was a brilliant guy, so. So Jack, yeah. I got to ask you a, a question. You know, yeah. here we have some of the most infamous crime figures, I suppose you can call them, right, in the world, and uh, they'll go down in lore thousands of years from now. Most people probably see them in one light. You've seen them in their full light. Correct. So, tell me about their full light, not just the perception well, you take of a, them as criminals. Take a man like Meyer Lansky. You know, Meyer Lansky was one of the one of the most intelligent men I ever met in my life. I mean, here's a man who ran the finances for the biggest corporation in the world, right? And he never wrote anything down. You know, people say, well, I've got Meyer Lansky's journals. And that's, that's a lie. When someone ever says that in front, I tell you it's a lie because he never wrote anything down. He was, he had an amazing mind and, and the way he did things was kind of incredible. You know, he was a, he was just one of these guys that he compartmentalized things and, and he used a simple formula. You know, it's like uh, in business, you have three columns. You have one column over here, column in the middle for spending and a column at the end of what, what, what should balance out. And if the end column doesn't balance out, then somebody stole something from the other two columns. You understand? You start out with X and you're, and you're, making, and you're supposed to make X in the middle then it should at the end side, the end figure. So that's pretty simple arithmetic, you know? And you just have to, he ran things like a machine. And this, and this guy, they invested money in insurance companies. They invested, but I'll give you a funny story. I, I was like, I think 19 years old. Yeah, it was about 19. And I got a phone call from the lawyer in Myers lawyer in, in Florida. And he said, uh, in Philadelphia, there were certain restaurants who were pretty categorized. And there were, you know, there's one restaurant in downtown Philly was a, a Jewish, the Jewish mob owned it, but it was a class class restaurant that people loved to go to because they could see figures, you know, people like, like the entertainment business and everybody, you know. So they said, meet Meyer there at 12 o'clock on such a day. And I said, okay, I never thought anything about it. So I went into the restaurant, I sat there and he, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. And he said, listen, here's the deal. A gentleman's coming here for a meeting and all I want you to do is sit there and look very stern and listen to what's going on. And I said, fine. You know, so this guy comes in and this guy was the CEO of the biggest insurance company in Philadelphia, in the country and, and Philadelphia housed some big insurance companies. It was just a mecca for it. Okay, so the guy comes in and he's and he's and he walks up and he says, "Hey, Meyer, how you doing?" And Meyer looked at him. And he said, "It's Mr. Lansky to you today." 
Now I know the guy's in trouble. Okay? <laughs> so the guy sits down. He said, uh, okay, Mr. Lansky. And he sits down. He said, uh, Meyer looked at him. He said, uh, have you taken care of my dear friend's problem? And the guy said, uh, well, it's it's at the top of a, of, of a pile at my desk. And, and immediately after lunch, I will make sure it's taken care of. And Meyer looked at him. And he said, uh, do you believe you have time for lunch? He said, because here's the situation. If my dear friend doesn't call me by three o'clock this afternoon and then tell me that his problem has been resolved, then while you're cleaning out your desk this afternoon and take the keys to that Cadillac and drop them off at the girl in the front. And I would suggest that you find new school arrangements for your children. And, you know, I was going to say to you that maybe you shouldn't try to get another job in the insurance company in America, but I don't know anywhere in the world that you would ever be able to go into the business again. Oops. Does that make myself clear here? <laughs> and, my, and the guy said, oh, it was, yeah, yeah, and he stumbled and fumbled and stumbled. And, and, and the guy got up and, and he went to leave and he had wet down his pants. I mean, there was a big wet stain in the front of his pants. And, 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 and he's, as he parted himself out the door, I'll take care of it right away. And, and Meyer looked at me, the guy left, and he looked across the table at me and he said, you see, young man, you don't need brute force for everything. Mm, yes, interesting, huh? <laughs> so it was a lesson I learned that there were certain things you have tools that you can utilize that you don't need to grab somebody and throw them against the wall to get something done. Mm. There's mental exercises that you can utilize that are very effective, you know, and, and it's like Meyer used to be a, a restaurant down in, in, in Florida, in Miami, Wolfie's. Yes. Wolfie's infamous. Was a famous in restaurant. Miami down. beach. Yes. Yeah. And everybody used to eat there. Well, Meyer used to eat there every day. Yeah. So he's sitting there having breakfast one morning and there's a guy on the table in front of him with another gentleman. And, and the guy's spouting off. He said, you know, Meyer Lansky this, Meyer Lansky that. And Meyer's sitting there listening to this guy. And this guy's trying to profess to this guy next to him how close and friendly he is with Meyer Lansky. <laughs> trying to utilize that as a power Leverage, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? So Meyer sat there and listened to this guy rant for about a half an hour. And then he gets up and he walks around in front of the guy. And he stands in front of the guy. And the guy looks up at him and he says, can I help you, pal? And Meyer said, well, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Meyer Lansky. <laughs> That's all surprise. he said to this guy. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> and he turned around and he went up and sat there. Well, of course, that guy never went to Woofies again. You understand? Like <laughs> <laughs> if he ever went anywhere again. But, you know, that's the kind of subtleties that these people did. Yeah. They didn't have to, they didn't have to grab people every day or, or, or muscle them around or anything of that nature, you know? So let's draw some perspective here for those that don't know uh, who your father was, uh, you know, but they may have even heard of the story. So 1957, Albert Anastasia walks into the Park Central Hotel on 7th Avenue and 55th Street in Manhattan, and he's getting a haircut and two guys come in and pow, uh, shoots him and and he's dead. I'll tell you, you know, the, the ironic part of that whole thing is that Meyer, I mean, Albert knew six months before that, that he was going to be assassinated. He had a feeling because they had tried to kill Frank, the Frank Costello and they were, they were you know, it was, 
Vito Genovese wanted the drug business very badly. And my father controlled all the ports. And when you watch The Godfather and you see where they went to Brando for about the drug business and he, he refused and he said, if we touch it, our children will touch it. It'll be the downfall of the families. Well, my father said that. He said, you're not bringing that shit through my harbors. Uh, we didn't sign up for that. That's not our deal. And Vito Genovese had been deported in the 30s. And when he went back to Italy, he got in bed with Mussolini. And he opened up a heroin factory down in, in, in Sicily. And they were manufacturing and exporting heroin in and out. And he swore that the people would never be, get involved with it. That it was just a business. That they were making a lot of money flowing it around. And uh, then he came back to America. He got a, the opportunity to come back to America. And he brought that business and the people, the Italians in, in, in Sicily that were involved in the business with him that came to America to set it up over in America, they weren't allowed to be called Italians. They were called Zips. They had a whole different name for them because the Italian, old-time Italian people did not want to be involved in that business. But Genovese convinced them that this was a money-making situation, bang, and started to leverage the whole thing out, and, you know, and he was trying to do a power play to take things over, to change things in, in what they called the organized crime. And, uh, and my father was against it and, and Charlie Luciano was against it. And, you know, there was people that weren't that in favor of it. And uh, they convinced Meyer that there was, because Meyer was a money guy. And they convinced him there was so much money involved and, and that they could get away with doing this and get away with doing that. You know, they had things under control and, uh, and that wasn't the case. So Albert smelled a rat coming down the street, I believe. And, you know, he came to meet me. It was the first time I ever met him, you know, in person. He, you know, he, he looked over me and I had a minder around me my whole life. But I was playing football in a, at West Catholic High School. I was in my freshman year. I was playing freshman football. And they had, uh, we played our games on, the, we had a, a football field behind our school. It was not where the varsity played. The varsity played in a big field, but we used to play our freshman games at this small field because you didn't have a big audience. And and there were grandstands, a short grandstand on one side. And all of a sudden, these four guys came and they were all dressed in like very good apparel. You know, you wouldn't <laughs> normally see people dressed that that well. Yeah, like those nice suits. Yeah. Tailor-made suits. You yep, know Back then, the hundred dollars went a long way. <laughs> and they're sitting in the stands watching this game, and and the coaches thought that they were they were college, you know, scouts or somebody, you know, that were looking at the talent. And that was my father and three of his friends. Albert never went anywhere by himself. So, uh, and then he all of a sudden he appeared at my house and uh, and professed, and I for the first time found out who he was. And my mother, you know, it was. Um, and it was an, an understandable meeting of me being in shock as a kid. And, you know, you're Albert Anastate. Wow. You know, because you read about him in the newspapers every day. And then he arranged, he said to me, you know, uh, I, I want you to come to New York uh, in, in about two weeks and we'll sit down and we'll really go through some things. And, you know, he wanted to open my eyes up to where, what was going on in the world. And, uh, and uh, he was assassinated before that could happen. And, you know, I remember the day that he was assassinated and 
the anger to come up in me. And, and one of the old timers from the South Jersey, who was a super individual, and he grabbed me and said, sat me down and said, you know, kid, you got to just, you got to calm down and just let things unfold. And, you know, things are going to happen in your life now that you is going to change. And, and Meyer Lansky took me under wing. Uh, along with Frank Costello, and uh, and I uh, was introduced to certain people and, and explained certain things were explained to me, and and then my father left me uh, a journal about 256 pages, which explained everything that was from his life and what was going to happen in the future, and and Albert was a pretty bright guy, and he uh, he, he he saw things coming, and. Uh, and knew things were going to change. So, can you explain was, how he um, looked to hide you basically until that point, and well, why he it, didn't it, reveal it, that he was yeah, your father? In, 19, in 1942, this is a good story. In 1942, he was the most looked after. They were looking for him everywhere because they they had already Louis Lipke, his partner in Murder Incorporated. Albert made a deal. Uh, they had to turn him in because Lipke was just, uh, he, Lipke gave a guy a beating that he should have killed. And the guy became the first rat and first, first guy to be put into witness protection program. Uh, and he ratted on, he put 11 guys from Murder Incorporated in death row. You know, uh, so Lipke had to hide and they hit him for a period of time. My father kept hiding him different places. But the pressure was getting too great, so they had to turn. They told him, "He says, you know, you've got to turn yourself in. There's nothing, nothing else you can do. It's costing us too much money." So they made a deal with Hoover. You know, Hoover was a young agent at the FBI, and Walter Winchell was a w- renowned guy. He brokered the deal. So Lepke left my father's car at 39th, and I think it was 39th and uh, Broadway or somewhere in there left my father's car, walked across the street with Walter Winchell and got into Hoover's car and turned himself in. And uh, it was big news. The FBI captures the number one uh, villain in the, in the country. You know, it gave them a lot of notoriety. It got them funding and made Hoover a big guy in, in the FBI. And Lipke was a funny guy. I mean, he was uh, one of the things he did that really impressed me the most was that uh, when he was going to the electric chair, Dewey went down to see him in his cell, in his jail cell, and he said to him, "He said, you know, you don't have to go down this hallway to that electric chair." He said, "I can make this to where I can give you life imprisonment at a very high level. You'll be well taken care of." And he said, "You know, your good friends put you here, so why don't you just tell me about your good friends, and and I can make all this go away." And Lipke looked at him and he said. Uh, you know, if my good friends put me here, they must have had a heck of a reason. So why don't we just cut this bull out and just take a walk down this alley and put me in the chair and get this thing over with? Go to hell. And we said more than that to him, but mm. we were on radio, so I won't go into that. But Is that what we call code just, of silence? <laughs> you know, and he just looked him right in the eye and just said, you know, like, piss off. And uh, and I always said, wow, what a, what a gutsy guy, you know, to just, to, you know, a lot of guys had made deals to keep their save their lives in jail and stuff and stuff like that. And then Lipke, boom, he was a stand up, he was who he was, and you know, and it so it, it changed a lot. So, Albert 
they were looking for Albert everywhere now. So he went and he got in the army at Indian Gap, Pennsylvania. And he was a sergeant. <laughs> he wasn't even a citizen of the United States. And he's in the US Army. And he's teaching soldiers how to be longshoremen. That was his job. But he never spent a night in the camp. He was in Philadelphia every night, down in the clubs, and and the waterfront was there. And, and he there was a man called Rip Collins who was Tommy Collins, the famous Irish, you know, war general in the Revolution. Michael Collins. It was his uh, his cousin. And Rip was an engineer at uh, General Electric, and he was uh, and he was the head of the IRA in Philly for the waterfront. So he was a good friend of my father's and he knew my mother well. And uh, he was a minder that was put over me when I was a kid. And my father had an affair with my mother because my stepfather, Paul Howard, he was a, an aviator in the Air Force and he was off at the war. So my mother was, they Jane Russell looked like a boy and her and Albert had a situation and I was the product of it. So in 1943, I was born. And Albert was back in New York, but he did not want me involved. And in, he knew, he knew what was unraveling in that world. And uh, he didn't want me involved in it. But this gentleman there, Rip Collins, you know, taught me so much as a young boy. I mean, just the guy prepared me for what was coming down the street. Well, I got to ask you a question, Jack. You know, a yeah. lot of people listening to this show called The Motivation Show is looking for positivity, motivation, inspiration, yeah. and a lesson, right? Yeah. And a lot of people can interpret this as uh, all negative, right? But I'm sure well, it there's, there, it, it's a bigger story. Exactly. And that's I mean, what I want to get to. It wasn't negative at all. It was, I, I, I want to, yeah. So I, I want to know what the lessons uh, that you feel that people looking for inspiration can get from this. Um, tell us. Yeah, I mean, it was it was all a positive. Every time I asked him what all this was about, he kept telling me, "One day it'll all unravel for you, kid. You'll you'll understand. You know, you just." Uh... So he helped me in my education. He he gave me uh, motivation uh, mm -hmm. as an athlete. He he took me out and trained me to mm -hmm. to run and to and to to, to better myself, to make me a better person, a mm -hmm. round, much more rounded individual. Um, I became very good at sports because of this guy. Uh, he, he coached me in, in, in running and, 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 uh, and physical growth. Yeah. And, and educational growth, you know, uh, he taught me mental gymnastics. He, he taught me how to concentrate, how to focus, how to compartmentalize, you know, he gave me, here's a good, here's a good one for you. He gave me a list of 50 objects, list of one to 50. Right. And it gave me two minutes to look at the list. And, and then he would ask me a number. I have to give him the object. He asked me the object because I, I put it in my head as, and he taught me how to sit and read a book, watch television, listen to a conversation and not miss a beat in any of it. How to focus and compartmentalize. All things that were better me as a better gentleman, as a young man, and taught me how to stay out of trouble and what to, what to look forward to as far as living life really in, in, a, in, a, in a good manner you know so educational wise it was brilliant the guy kept me out of jail as a kid i, I got stayed away from stuff i stayed away from from the, he taught me how to stay away from things temptations and stuff like that 
and sports was my outlet, you know, and I, and I was a pretty good athlete. And when I was in high school, I played basketball. I, I, I set track records. I, I, I played football, you know, and by the time I got up to where I was going to go to college, you know, I was a big kid and I was like six foot five and, and, I, and I was 250, 40, 50 pounds when I first went, to, when I was first going to go to college and I ran a four, 600, I mean, 40. I run a four six forty, which is not not too shabby for a guy your for a guy your size. That's, uh, size. that's, that's moving pretty good. I mean, and I had I knew I had great lateral movement, and you know, and I learned all this, and I I learned not to lift weights. I learned isometrics, and he taught me martial arts, and he taught me ways to think. You know, open my mind up, and between him and Meyer Lansky. You know, I, I was becoming a very well-rounded young man, you know, and, and learned how to, there were better things in the world than getting caught up in some stupid gang or something down in a city somewhere or some. How, how did like you, that. how did you avoid getting into that path when you were surrounded by some very interesting people uh, who uh, others uh, would, know, would, a, would, would judge in a different way, perhaps? I was a very tough kid when I was a kid. You know, I, I, I learned how to handle myself from, from Rip. And, and when I was 14 years old, I, I, if a guy 30 came to me, I'd knock him on his ass. You know, I, was, I, was, I, I could handle myself very mm -hmm. well. And uh, so it, it just was some of the attributes that were given to me, you know, gave me uh, an openness. It, it actually made college very boring to me. I had a man like Lansky teaching me business. You couldn't teach me in any school what that man could teach me <laughs> and because it was practical knowledge outside world. You know, you were learning about the world and you go to school and they want to teach you what they, what they have in books, which is a lot of it's garbage. You understand? And so college became very boring to me. You know? And I, and, and you know what your SATs are, right? Yep. My SATs, I scored, I think around, 15, 15, 10 or something like that. And I think 1600 is the highest you can get. I was at a fort somewhere in, in, in very high up. And when I went down to school and, and they, uh, you know, I had, <laughs> I had a few lady friends. Western Kentucky was a pretty neat school. And I had some people that were very smart and they took great notes and I hated going to class. So I would study their notes and then I would take my test. I would go in and take the exams and I would ace in all the exams. And, and the guy, the, the dean of, of administration said, how can you possibly, you don't go to class, so how are you possibly, you gotta be, accuse me of cheating, you know? And I said, well, you know what? You get the guy, put it, I'll do an exam right in front of you. Just put them, you make up whatever exam you want and I'll do it. So they did that and I aced them all. And the guy was amazed. He said, I, I don't know how, how, how you're doing all this stuff. So, and, that, and that made me very angry. And I said, take this school and stick it. And, and, the, and the athletic director was very angry because here's a great athlete that they're about to lose over some stupidity, you know, which they felt was stupid. So school to me was forget about it. So well, Jack, I left. you uh, are involved now with a book, I understand, right? Called Family yeah. Legacy, which yeah. gives us a, pretty detailed portrait of how things were with Albert yeah. Anastasia and yeah. how you grew up with that. And, yeah. uh, and even you talk about the uh, Kennedy assassination. It's, that's a, that's a great set. I mean, you got to understand, uh, 
I'll ask you a question. If you were going to point your finger at one person responsible for Jack Kennedy's death, who do you think it would be? Well, just by the nature that you're asking that question, I could not answer Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> because Oswald. that's Oswald the was, that's the obvious answer, right? Oswald that, was Oswald was a patsy, man. Yeah. Jeez, God, I mean, people, and that's all come out since. Oswald wasn't even in the building. Uh, the the guy, the most responsible individual for Jack Kennedy's death was his father. His father made so many enemies over the years. And you're going back. Joe, Joe go Kennedy, back. you're referring to. Joe Kennedy, yeah. Joe Kennedy, you got to go back to Prohibition era, okay? And we'll do a short run at it. Prohibition era, Joe Kennedy had a factory up in, in Canada where his father-in-law was Honey Fitzgerald, who was a gangster from Ireland, came into Boston and became a very prominent, he became a senator, you know, with the bank, very wealthy guy. Rose Kennedy's father, yeah? So she marries... Joe Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, his father-in-law makes him the youngest president of a bank in the history of America. Because Joe Kennedy was a very bright guy. No two ways about it. The guy was intelligent, bright, bright, bright guy. And during Prohibition, they had this factory up in Canada and they were running booze down into America. Well, there was a load of booze that was coming down that would belong to the Purple Gang. And Joe Kennedy hijacked it and gave it to somebody else. And the Purple Gang was very happy. And they said, you know what? You're a dead man, Sunshine. And if they told you you were a dead man, chances of you were going to be a dead man. And he ran home to his father-in-law. And he said, you know, you got to help me. He said, I can't. Only one guy can help you in the country. And he's in Chicago. So he went out and saw Joe Esposito, who was the first Don of Chicago. And he sat down with him. And Joe Esposito said, you know what? You're a real serious earner, kid. You go home to Boston. I'll take care of the Purple Gang. But here's the deal. You belong to us now. And he was under thumb to Chicago his whole life. And he did not like that at all. The only building that Joe Kennedy ever put money into in America was the Mercantile Building in downtown Chicago because they made him do that. Okay? So there's a whole history. I could sit here for an hour and tell you about Joe Kennedy. We would. We ain't got time for that. So the whole thing bronze down, boils all the way down to Jack Kennedy was a very ill man, and he was not going to live out his term. He was dying of Addison's disease. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a deterioration mm -hmm. of the spinal canal. And they shot him up every day. He had four different diseases he was dying of, three other ones beside the Addison disease. So they shot him up every day. And his father would rather see him die the way he died than die with a, with a physical mark against the family. And you could say, wow, that's awful cold. But look at what he did to his daughter. He lobotomized his own daughter because she suffered from ADD. And they didn't have doctors in those days that could give you any kind of formulation to help ADD people. Do you know who Dorothy Kilgallen was? She was a sure. TV person yeah. uh, and yeah. she was a writer sure. uh, and she had uh, written in columns and she apparently... Uh, was coming up uh, and interviewed uh, Jack Ruby in jail, I believe. And uh, <laughs> then uh, she uh, disappeared, uh, died. But, no, she didn't dis disappear. I guess she she got murdered. Uh, apparently, she was coming out with an expose. Thoughts? Yeah. The expose is Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby came from Chicago. He owned a, a club up in Chicago. And he was one of the biggest number writers 
all the way. They, they used to have, uh, I don't know if you're, I guess you're old enough to remember. They used to have a punch board, a punch board. You punch a thing down and the number come out and it was a betting board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he controlled that all the way to the East coast from Chicago. Well, then somebody happened, something happened in one of his clubs and somebody got killed. So he had to leave Chicago and they sent him to Houston. They sent him to Dallas and they put his sister had been down there before him, opened a restaurant. He went down and opened up a club and he became viable as a runner to and from Cuba, going back and forth, carrying messages and setting things up and stuff like that. He was a gopher. Okay. And when this Kennedy assassination thing was orchestrated and it was orchestrated by one man, and we'll get into that later, a little later on, one guy orchestrated it. And I'll tell you who the people were that put that together. It took them six months to rearrange Jack Kennedy's flow down Dealey Plaza. Ruby was an instrumental guy by all his dealings with Cuba and everything. So it gave him an inner relationship of when it all exposed how they could, another conspiracy theory could be put out. Uh, Jack Ruby, first of all, goes into a place uh, uh, that nobody should be carrying a gun into a place where it's supposed to be policed very well. And they're bringing Lee Harvey Oswald out. And if you look at the footage, then they have footage of the shooting. The, the, the policeman that was bringing him out, that was alongside of him, you see him step away from yep, Ruby as yep. he comes out the infamous, door. Infamous, infamous. And yep. Ruby and Ruby has a clear shot of killing him. Okay, now yep. let's look at Oswald. There was no. Here's a guy who shot the president of the United States. All the interviews that the police did with him, there was not one documented piece of paper. There were no tapes of recordings of the of the conversation. Nothing. Okay, now. Jack Ruby shoots the guy. Jack Ruby goes to jail. Jack Ruby says to, they go in to, to grab, jump all over. And the Warren Commission was there. That was, they were put together right away. They go to, to grab Ruby. Ruby says to them, and they said to Ruby, uh, Ruby said to them, I guess you want me to tell you about Chicago. And they said, nope, we don't want to hear about none of that. Ruby said, you cannot question me here. You've got to move me. It's not safe, me being here. You've got to move me. Now, understand something. There was a cancer development department at Tulane University. Needles used to come out of Tulane University. People were shot up with cancer. Gentlemen who were in jail that people didn't want to live past that period of time died in jail of cancer. Ruby has, was not sick one day prior to going to jail within five months he's a dead man dies of cancer okay you sounds, sounds a little suspicious to me all right so yeah, a little Ruby quick just all of a sudden dies yeah. of cancer okay yeah. end of story oswald is shot and gone end of story you understand now who orchestrated dealey plaza who orchestrated the kennedy assassination there was a man from europe by the name of Carlos Sanchez, who was the jackal. You ever hear the story of, of the course, jackal? Of course, the jackal, yeah, infamous. The jackal yeah. was the most infamous assassin Europe ever had. He orchestrated that assassination for the, for the bankers of Geneva because the bankers of Geneva were hurt very bad for the depression. The depression was orchestrated not 
as to become a depression, Joe Kennedy orchestrated a short sell. And it was aimed at 30 companies in Europe. And the reason for it was because America, after World War I, became a war-bearing country. We started manufacturing war goods. We took jobs away from Europe. We took revenue streams away from Europe. And Europe was screaming that they were not getting the return on their money that they invested into America. And you have to go back to the beginning, the very first bank that was ever put in place in America, only $1 million came from America. The rest came from Europe, the bankers of Geneva, okay? So Kennedy puts this short sell together, works extremely well. They take a day or two off, come back and finish it. And in that interim, the country panicked and ran on the banks and it caused the crash of 29. Well, that crash cost these European countries, companies a fortune. They never forgot it. You understand that? And one of the companies that was bankrupt was owned by Blackjack Bouvier, his father and his uncle. That was Jackie Kennedy's father. Right. Drank himself to death over it. But the company that he ran was a Rothschild company. Wrong people to make angry at you. Jack, okay. do you think this story is ever going to come out um, in a way that it's going to change the narrative? Because the narrative has been the same way since 1963. It comes out, yeah. it comes out in bits and pieces yeah. every 10 years. Mm -hmm. Every 10 years, things happen and come out. You know, it's like it's like the one bullet theory. Yeah. It's been totally tarnished because Jack Kennedy was shot three times that day. And the, the bullet in his lower back didn't come out until 10 years later. Yeah. The autopsy that was done in Dallas, Texas, was done shoddily by interns, and then his body was shipped up to Washington. Jack Kennedy was shot. The first bullet that hit him hit him in the throat. Yep. It came from a cauldron along the side of the street, and it was done by Johnny Roselli from Chicago. I was in Dallas. I ran with Johnny that morning in the camp at, at, at the park. And he said to me, you got to leave Dallas. You know that. I said, I know I'm on my way out. But, I, you know, I was there. I was at night before I was at, at Clint Murchison Jr.'s house who owned the Dallas Cowboys and owned a few other things in Dallas. His father was one of the wealthiest men in the world. Clint Murchison Sr. That's okay? a pretty that's a pretty remarkable statement. There isn't many people on the planet then who would be in a position to know what you know. Would there be? Well, that cauldron today has been cemented in. That cauldron was big enough for me, my size, to walk from the river to that street. That's how big it was. Hmm. And a rifle shot from that cauldron hit Kennedy in the throat. And you see Jack Kennedy in his Zabruder film grab his neck and fall forward. Yes, famous. And he fell on top of Conley, who was shot first. Conley was shot. He fell down. Jack fell on top of him. The, the governor, right? Yeah. John Connolly, He was right? shot first, and then he fell. Con Jack fell on top of him, and the last shot came from the driver, Greer. And he turned and, and hit him in the front of his head, and you see the back of his head blow out. Now, if Lee Harvey Oswald is shooting him from up in the window, he would have hit him in the back of the head and would have come out the front. So wouldn't ballistics easily find out that there was more than one shooter or, or well, they did do. Yeah, they, they, yeah. but you know you're not listening to but, me but yeah i'm hearing you all yeah. covered it was all covered <laughs> over and every 10 years things come out and greer the guy who drove the car on his deathbed 
admit it to fact. And if you've seen the Zabruder footage, all yep. of it, the eight frames have now since been put back. I had the eight frames. The eight frames have now been put back on, on the internet where you can see the whole footage and they say the FBI put the thing together, blah, 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 boom. You understand? But yep. you got to understand, where did the Zabruder footage come from? Why was Zabruder even shooting a camera? Here's the deal. Zabruder and the Mornchild were two white Russians that came out of Russia into New York. They were garment guys. Meyer Lansky gave them a quarter of a million dollars and sent them to Florida, I mean, to, uh, to Dallas to open up the garment district. The Mornchild is the one who educated Oswald in Russian and introduced him to the KGB girl that he married. And he went to Russia thinking he was going to be this big spy. But he couldn't keep his mouth shut. So every flat that they lived in was bugged. They threw him out of Russia. Now he's back home. He's a, he's a throwaway and a perfect patsy. His mother was, was a call girl almost. She, she ran around with Carlos Marcellus' lieutenant in New Orleans. The whole thing was an orchestrated deal. Oswald, Oswald was not that great a marksman, number one. Number two, if you know anything about weapons whatsoever, here's a mail order rifle that this shot was supposed to be taken with. A mail order gun that comes and if you're anything about a marksman, you know that if you're gonna take a shot of a thousand feet, you have to put all the variables in. And Dealey Plaza had terrible wind pattern. You had the car going down the hill in the ocean. You had trees, signs, everything had to be taken into perspective. And any marksman has to take his blood down, has to take his pulse down to below 60 and it takes, it takes 60 seconds to do that. Now you're telling me that you got on a, on a bolt action rifle and took three accurate shots in 60 and 28 seconds? That's ludicrous. And the marks, any marks will tell you that's the craziest story you'll ever hear in your life. There was a prison right across the street from the bird building, okay? And they saw three men in the window, two dark complected guys who were Cubans and one white guy and it wasn't Oswald. And that gun was fired three times as a diversion tactic, okay? Oswald wasn't even in the building, to be honest with you. He was already on his way to where he was supposed to go. And you learned all this because of, obviously, the yeah. people Yeah, now you got to ask yourself yeah. this question. you got to ask yourself a question. Who was the number one cop in the country when Jack Kennedy got killed? I wouldn't know the answer to that. His brother was Bobby, was the attorney general. Ah, ah yes, the and attorney general. His yeah. brother, his brother was his second skin everywhere Jack went in his political career. Bobby was his second yes, skin. Yes, yes. Okay. Now, four people went to Bobby prior to Jack going to Dallas to tell him, do not let your brother go to Dallas. The animosity down there is atrocious. Mm -hmm. Adlai Stevenson was one of the people. Adlai Stevenson said, they just spat at me in Houston. Do not let Jack go down there to Dallas. Now, Bobby didn't go before. He wasn't there during, and he never went afterward because he knew his brother wasn't coming home. You understand that? Wow. Now, there's even go further. A little bit, you know, let's not even stop play there. As you unravel this whole thing, okay? At the time of that Dealey Plaza deal, there were 30 people there that could have been shooters. 
Woody Harrelson's father was one of the hobos that came that they locked up that was trying to go over that bridge. Now, why would you have people walking over a bridge when the president of the United States is in an open car below it? Why would you have the windows open in the bird building with people walking around above the car? Can you imagine the Secret Service allowing that today? Oh, no. Hello? Yeah. Now, Zabruder, there's a good back to, back to DeMorne John and Zabruder. Zabruder never held a camera in his hand prior to that day. Really? He, he was up high. Three women were holding his legs because he suffered from vertigo. And he never took his finger off the trigger of that camera for the 28 seconds of the footage because the footage was already sold to Life magazine for $150,000 prior to it even being shot. Wow. And then it was developed in a laboratory in Dallas, which was owned by the Murchison family. And eight frames were taken out of the original footage. And the footage was never seen for a year until a year after the Kennedy assassination. Well, that's a, that's a heck of a story, I'll tell you that. Uh, so let's go into your book and your mini series, and yeah. what we're going to expect to learn from that. Tell us about both of them. Just what I just got done telling you, you know. The, well, the, let's go into the mini series. How's that going to play into your story, and what's going to be? Mini series will go. Well, the mini series will start with the with with the beginning of people coming into America, and how they unfolded. And how they all came in with no money and how they, they, they all became part of a crew together. You're talking about Lansky and Costello and, and, and Charlie Luciano, my father, and, and how, and my father, <clears throat> my father snuck into America. My father was, was already a criminal in, in, in Italy. We came from Calabria. His mother was Sicilian. His father was Calabrian. And Albert came on a boat with his brothers into America and they smuggled him off the boat into Brooklyn. And, uh, and he got into trouble. He was working down on the docks and there was a guy who was down there and he was, he was robbing everybody. And he was a, a boss of the, of the crews down there and he was stealing on the side. And some people who were running the, the waterfront were Italians and they, they got wind of it and, and Albert killed the guy stuck him with a with a with a with a, a, a nice pick and went to jail for murder and he was on death row he was supposed to die in in jail and uh and an old italian guy got in trouble in jail albert took care of it for him boom 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 and the guy called charlie luciana and said you know there's a guy in this jail that you need to get out and i think he'd be advantageous to you in the future and the guy was a powerful old italian guy and Charlie Luciano arranged for my father to have a new trial. And of course, all the witnesses disappeared. And Albert was let go, free. So in those days, they deported people when you got into trouble like that. They never deported them. And he formed a relationship with Charlie Luciano. And the so, relationship must And the name of the miniseries? La Familia, I think. All right. And how are people going to be able to... Uh find it where is it going to be sh uh, shown it'll be shown I, you know will there be a major network not a, a, a probably one of the either hbo or showtime or something be announced gotcha yeah you know finish here is going to be good because yep. there was too much to put into a, a movie we were going to do a movie and then a television series but i think we'll do a mini series yep. 
and then do a series because we're going to put Charlie Luciano's book. We're going to bring that in incorporated as well. Don't miss part two of this exclusive interview where you will hear about the infamous disappearance of Teamster boss, Jimmy Hoffa. Also, Jack's fight with George Foreman and whether Jack would have beaten Muhammad Ali. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.